All right. Well, thanks for watching and listening, folks. Um, uh, we are now in Acts chapters 9 through 11, the last half of 9, going through 10, and then on into a little bit of 11. Um, uh, you'll have to uh, excuse me. This week I'm actually recording this instead of doing it live in front of a sanctuary audience. Uh, so right now I'm actually alone in this uh, this sanctuary. Um, empty pews, there's the computer there, the camera. Um, and so I'm just talking to nobody, but uh, that's okay. So you'll forgive me if I actually look off to the side. I'm not actually looking at people. I just think my brain might need to do that from time to time as I'm, as I'm talking. So, um, yeah, and I'm doing that because there's nothing at the building this Shabbat, so no one's going to be here, and I wanted to get this done a little bit ahead of time. Um, so, yeah, so here we are. Uh, we're in uh, 9, verse 32, going through chapter 11, verse 18 of the book of Acts. We move away from Saul for a time to follow Peter, and the important lesson that Yeshua is, continues to teach about the Gentiles to the leaders of the Messianic community. Now, most of you know that the vision of the sheet in chapter 10 has nothing to do with food. But for those of you who didn't know that, the vision of the sheet has nothing to do with food. So uh, let's understand that going into it and see what, uh, what the word reveals to us. Before we do that, I just want to... Uh, review a little bit about the last teaching, a couple points that are still relevant here. Of course, it's all relevant, but, but the reason why Luke does it in this order is important to remember. In the last teaching, we talked about how Saul was a specific instrument in verses, uh, nine, chapter 9, verse 15, for a specific commission. He is a bit of an outsider to begin with, um, and, he, and God needed a kind of outsider Jewish prodigy like Saul, to reach the Gentiles with the good news about the Jewish Messiah. So this was all calculated brilliantly on God's part. And he had to come to this revelation directly from God, Saul being uh, needing to come directly to this revelation from God, not from men, uh, which is the revelation of the mystery, the mystery being that the Gentiles are now heirs to the kingdom. Okay, so so keep, keep those points in mind, especially... Uh, where Saul is referred to as his chosen instrument, God's chosen instrument, from chapter 9, verse 15. Okay, so that's, that's enough of a review. Let's go ahead and get into today's teaching. Open your Bibles to Acts 9, 32. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through uh, a little bit of each verse and call out a few interesting things uh, that jump out to me uh, and, and and kind of come to a culmination at the end with some uh, lesson that I think we need to take away from it this time being in Acts. Acts 9.32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints or holy ones who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named uh, Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Yeshua the Messiah heals you, rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Um, something to note here that holy ones is a title given in the Amidah to those who commit to daily prayer. Uh, so these are, it's saying something about these, these individuals. As we go through a lot in Scripture, 
you know, so much of these place names, these cities, these villages, these towns are either not around anymore or we know so little about them. It's hard to get kind of a, a good geographical, geological, political picture of what's going on. So for a few of these cities, I want to just kind of describe a little bit about each of them because they're actually significant cities in ancient times. The first one we see here is Lydda. Lydda was an important Pharisaic center and a valuable city uh, in, in Israel. The ancient rabbis considered it second only to Jerusalem. Okay, so it was, it was very uh, significant spiritually. And as far as it's, it was like, you know, if it would be like um, New York would be Jerusalem or uh, Chicago or LA or whatever. Like, it, like if you're talking big cities, big metropolitan areas, metropolitan, of course, Lydda was second only to Jerusalem. It had a variety of industries and many synagogues in it. Um, And then it became a rabbinic center after the destruction of the temple. So when Jerusalem couldn't be what it had been, Lydda took over some of those rabbinic responsibilities. Um, So just to give you an example, Lydda, big deal. Verse 36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means gazelle. Okay, so... If you have your Bible out, um, it'll say Dorcas, which is also a a, a woman's name. So this is just kind of a translator's choice. um, And I I permit you to cross out Dorcas and write in there gazelle. Dorcas is the Greek word for gazelle. Um, So saying Tabitha, which translated means gazelle, makes more sense to us as English speakers. But I remember, um, even as, as, as recently as a few weeks ago, just reading this and going, that's weird. You know, that's like saying, you know, her name was Stephanie, uh, which translated means Sarah or Jessica. Like, like these are just two names. I, I don't understand it. But it makes more sense when you think that Tabitha, which translated into Greek, means Dorcas, but Dorcas translated into English means gazelle. Um, and then finishing the verse, and she was full of good words and works and acts of charity. This name, Dorcas, or Gazelle, is, is like a nickname. She was bounding with energy. She was servant-oriented. She, just, she was full of good work. She was like nonstop doing good. And so that kind of moniker, Gazelle, really made sense. So just so you know there. Now we're in Joppa, of course. Joppa, also known as Yaffa, is one of the oldest cities in the world. Uh, it's on a hill overlooking a natural harbor, so it's on the coast. It, is, it was a strategic prize for conquerors. It was something that was sought after by Egyptian uh, and, and other conquering armies. Um, it was actually an early center of the way of the Messianic community. There was a, it was a, a big uh, collection of, of folks there. And it is now incorporated into Tel Aviv. So if you look on a map, it'll say Tel aviv Yafo. Uh, it, Tel Aviv has grown into incorporate Yaffa or Yaffa, Jaffa into its uh, borders, and you you can see old Yaffa, uh, old Jaffa listed on your on your map. That is Jaffa, very important city, also very important, very prized city. All right, moving on, verse thirty-seven. In those days, she became ill. This is Tabitha, 
and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Uh, Of note that she was laid in an upper room tells us something. It tells us that she was a widow, uh, because widows would usually live in the upper room, I believe, of a a male relative, a brother uh, or an uncle or something. But if she was laid to rest in an upper room, it's because she was living there and she was a widow at this point. So she had this extra time to give and to do good works for her people. Moving on. Okay, since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that uh, Dorcas, or Gazelle, made while she was with them. Uh, But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a Tanner. All right, so here's something of note, worth noting. Peter here, and this has to do with halakha and ritual purity. The messianic community, uh, the apostles, many in the Jewish community were very focused on ritual purity and how to maintain it because they were going to the temple multiple times a day to pray and you had to be of a certain, uh, you had to be clean, ritually pure in order to go in and do that. And so there was halakha or rules put in place that said, okay, you can do this, but don't do that because that will make you ritually impure, keeping you from entering into the temple for prayer. So, so this is something to consider here about uh, the motivation and goal of the, the, the people of the time. So here we see Peter enters a room with a dead body in it. Then after she is raised, he touches her hand. So all kinds of questions about ritual purity are raised here, but he does it anyway. He enters this room. I mean, this is the kind of question that that is talked about at length in in the rabbinic literature, right? Okay, what if someone is dead and then raises from the dead? Can you touch them even though they were just dead? Are they ritually unclean because they were just dead or... You know, what, how far away should I be outside in the other room or should I be outside the house? Can I be there sitting next to it but not touching? All these kinds of questions are what halakha answers. But they're all customs, all traditions that help a group of people understand how to fulfill a command that is more than likely gray. So here he is in the room with a dead body. Touches her after she comes back to life. Okay, He does it. Then we see he enters the house of a tanner. All right. The job of a tanner, if you for for modern audiences who don't who don't really see the connection between a lot of the a lot of the things we consume or the products we buy with the actual process to make them, we're too far removed from the uh, uh, the nature of tanning, the nature of being a butcher or a a, you know a, a grocer. It starts with something that probably involves death. Job of a tanner, 
involves handling carcasses all day in the presence of decay and stench, and his house will smell like death. There were even stipulations put on tanners that they could only come, uh, they could only come to the temple after they had uh, gotten rid of the stench because it was just it was overpowering. Um, it was just it was not good. So here again, more questions of ritual purity are raised by this. But Peter stayed there many days. He, he not only did he go in and be with him amongst you know, being only one degree removed from touching carcasses through this individual and the things he touches, and right? He goes there anyway, stays in this place. Um, you, you could say that maybe he stayed there because he knew he wouldn't be bothered. Um, he's, a, you know, he's a pretty popular and, and influential apostle. People wanted to get to him, especially since he could help raise people from the dead, you know. And he's like, well, I can hide in this, in this uh, very smelly house for a little while. Who knows? But the fact is, he went in. Halakha would have said, don't do that. But he did. Okay. So we know that Peter will set aside certain halakhic restrictions regarding ritual purity when it comes to people, specifically Jewish people. Okay. And as they say on the, I think it's a Monty Python series uh, from the BBC many decades ago, and now for something completely different. Cornelius. Here we see Cornelius, a God-fearer in Caesarea. He's at Caesarea, so let's talk a little bit about Caesarea. Caesarea was built by Herod the Great at great expense to be a thoroughly cosmopolitan Israeli port city that rivaled any Roman-era city. It was, uh, uh, if the leaders and community in Joppa, which again is on the coast, and a natural harbor, if they had been agreeable to all the things that Herod wanted to build, Colosseum, um, you know, amphitheaters, pagan, this and that and the other, if they had been agreeable to that, he would have preferred, and it would have been cheaper, to do this in Joppa. But that was not going to fly, and he wasn't a tyrant. He still had to govern um, and rule, so he just decided to build a brand new city, Caesarea, um, a, a very Greek city, right? It's still within Israel, and it's inhabited by Jews, but mostly by Gentiles. And there was, in, there was politically and culturally a not, a, a not covert, so a very open disdain between the Jewish people and the Gentiles. The Jews believing likely that this is Israel. Herod was our king. He built this city. It's ours. And the Gentiles were thinking, this is pagan city, not Jewish, not you know, not, there, there's, there's, it's not for the Jews, doesn't seem like it. So this is, this is ours. What are you doing here? So there was this kind of open disdain. But, but because of this city, there was much more interaction and engagement between, directly between Jews and Gentiles that created this, uh, this uh, it was probably like the birthplace or, or, or a hotbed for God-fearers. Okay, and we'll talk about that here in a second. 
Okay, moving on. Chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man, a God-fearer, or who feared God, with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. A devout man. This, is, this denotes something. This denotes a significant degree of Torah observance in this Gentile uh, centurion who feared God. And he is not a convert to Judaism, all right? Um, there were likely many in Caesarea being a great mixture of Gentile and Jewish peoples, these God-fearers. So what is a God-fearer? F.F. Bruce, in his book entitled The Book of Acts, puts it this way. Many Gentiles of those days, while not prepared to become full converts to Judaism, the requirement of circumcision being a special stumbling block for men, were attracted by the simple monotheism of Jewish synagogue worship and by the ethical standards of the Jewish way of life. Some of them attended synagogue and became tolerably conversant with the prayers and scripture lessons which they heard read in the Greek version. Some observed with more or less scrupulosity, that's a great word, such distinctive Jewish practices as Sabbath observance and abstention from certain kinds of food, notably pork. Cornelius' attachment to the Jewish religion appeared particularly in his regular prayer to the God of Israel and acts of charity to the people of Israel. One may say, indeed, that he had every qualification short of circumcision which could satisfy Jewish requirements. Another part of this verse, all his household. Um, Oh, I didn't finish that. Okay, so moving on to uh, uh, verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day. um, This is, of course, indicates his practice of daily liturgy. One of the daily prayers is at the ninth hour. So that's not just a random, it was about this time of day. This is saying he prayed at the ninth hour, which meant he, he, he practiced the daily liturgy. He saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, oh, oh wait, I skipped something else. Oh, uh, um, a God fear with all his household, right? With all his household. Um, he had introduced his entire family, his slaves, because that includes his household. His slaves are a part of his household. Some of his soldiers, as we'll see later on, and friends to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here was a God, not just a God-fearer, but he was a God-fearer missionary. He was was all about bringing as many people in his circle into being God-fearers and into practicing this. So it wasn't just a... It wasn't just a a fashionable thing to do. This was something that was deeply personal and passionate um, to Cornelius. He gave gave alms to the people. He had introduced, or he had practiced tzedakah for the Jewish community, to the Jewish community. Uh, There are, um, in antiquity, there's lots of uh, records of of centurions or other God-fearers, Gentiles, donating money to build synagogues or giving... Uh, giving money to do things for the Jewish community. So we have record of it. Those are God-fearers too. Um, Okay, so then ninth hour, and then we're in verse 3, 4. God came into him and said, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, 
your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Okay, again, here we see a devout soldier. So the servants, we know, are, are, are devout. Um, and now we see a soldier of his that's devout as well. So some of his soldiers were also uh, believers in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. <clears throat> okay, that, so that's Cornelius and his vision. Now we move to Peter and his. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, so right here we see they, they went quickly from Caesarea to Joppa, going through the night, likely. Uh, they, as they were on their journey and are approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, which is another time of prayer. And he became hungry. So the sixth hour is around noon. It's around lunchtime, high noon. And he's hungry. Um, and he wanted something to eat, but while they were pre- preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, I, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again, and again a second time, What God has made clean, uh, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Okay, so let's look at Let's look at all the main things about this vision. First of all, we see the heavens opened. So I don't know how you could have pictured that. So something about the heaven, the sky opening, like it's already pretty open to me, but something about it opened. An object like a great sheet came down. Now, remember in the review, I said to, to remember that Saul was called God's chosen instrument. This is the same word. This word object and instrument are the same words. It's lowered by four corners to the ground. On it are all kinds of four-footed animals, crawling creatures like reptiles, and birds of the air. Now, none of these are, are all, all of these are animals that are forbidden to eat. So as he's looking at this, Peter's not thinking, well, that looks good. That looks yummy. No, he's not even thinking food. He just sees unclean animals. This happened three times. The object with the animals were taken back up into heaven. And notably, Peter did not eat any of it, even after he was instructed to do so. So let's look back. So, so this, is all, this is all what's going on. So it's, it's understandable that this could cause confusion, that there could be people misinterpreting what this means. It, I get it. But we have to understand how God communicates uh, and that he's sometimes not talking about what he's talking about. And this is an example here, which is why Peter was perplexed and thinking, having to think about this for a while. But that was kind of the point. 
You know, Yeshua used parables all the time, not to just give you an answer to something, but to make you think, to make you, uh, to, to help help you mine the depths of your understanding and knowledge to come to the truth and the wisdom of a thing, right? So it, it, uh, parables and these kinds of visions encapsulate something that has to be uncovered. And so Peter had to do that, and we do too. So we should never just take something at face value, which will get us into trouble. All right, so let's look back in verse... 15, at the words here that uh, would be used. So verse 15, 10, 15, and the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. Now, I know that this is, of course, the Greek scriptures, but the words that would have been used by the, uh, by the Lord to Peter would have been Hebrew. And the Hebrew words he would have used, if translated this way, would have been this. What God has made taher, do not call kulin. Get it? No. Anyway, let me, I'll explain what those are. <laughs> so taher is something that is cleansed physically and ritually. So what God has made physically and ritually clean, do not call Chulin. Chulin means something that is unfit for sacred purposes. So another way to, to put this. Well, okay. So so that 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 is that is a reason why Peter would be confused because these, these are different ideas: cleanliness, being clean and unclean, or being holy and unholy. These are different concepts, related somewhat, but he's seeing. Unclean animals come out of heaven, go back up. He's told to eat them, but they're not food. God's saying, don't call, uh, don't, uh, what God has cleansed, what God has made tahir or, or clean physically and ritually, do not call unfit for sacred purposes. Like, like if there's, that there's just enough information provided to Peter that he can figure it out, but not so much that it doesn't take a little effort. Okay, so keep, keep all that in mind. We'll get, we'll get to, to what, this, what this is here in just a second here. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, he's up there on the roof, you know, getting out of the stench of the tanner's house. He's up there with a beautiful view of, of, of the sea and trying to make sense of this. He's, he's perplexed. Because he knows one, he knows he knows a few things. He knows a lot about scripture. He knows what the commands are, what the kashrut laws are regarding what you can and can't eat, um, what it means to be holy or unholy, or ritually pure or not ritually pure. He knows all these things, but he also knows that God does not contradict Himself. God would not present to him unclean animals and tell him to eat them as if God were repealing the laws of eating unclean animals. God would not do that. So he knows this, which is why he doesn't go, oh, this is just about God saying all animals are clean now. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't eat, he doesn't partake of the, of the food in this vision either. So he doesn't, he knows that God doesn't contradict himself. And he correctly responds to the instruction by not eating the animals forbidden as food. And then food is not really mentioned again this whole time, even when he comes before the apostles in, in Jerusalem. 
So what God said was, again, what God has cleansed physically and ritually, do not call unfit for sacrificial purposes or set apart. Do not call call, um, unholy. What he didn't say, and which would make a whole lot more sense, and, and, and Peter wouldn't have been scratching his head, what he didn't say was, what God has cleansed physically and ritually, do not call forbidden to eat. That's in the same concept, the same understanding of clean and unclean. What God has, call, has cleansed, has made clean physically and ritually, do not call forbidden to eat. And it's animals that you don't eat. That would all make sense. But God was, was using these animals on a sheet that you could say represents the world, the four corners, the four corners of the earth. This is coming down. This is representing humanity, people, right? So, so as he's perplexing this, he sees there's these people coming to his house, and he's, he probably is just like, ah, I need to figure this out, right? Um, okay, so moving on. Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by, the whole, by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. Okay. In verse 19, three men. This would have been a clue to Peter. Three times this sheet came down and back up, and now three men. Um, the 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 mind of the mind of someone who is who is fully attached to God's word sees patterns, and this would have been a marker for him. Like, oh, oh, there's something about this related to what I just saw. Then in verse twenty, accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Okay, so God is sending them. God sent this down from heaven. And he's sending these three men. So three that God sent, one, two, three, three men that God sent. He's like, okay. So he's like, all right, I think I'll figure this out. Then in verse 22, the, uh, the, the men who were sent describe who sent them, who they are, and it's coming together. Cornelius, a centurion, all of a sudden, Peter knows, oh, this, these are Gentiles. And we'll get to what Jewish people were encouraged to not do with Gentiles. It is halakha for Jews not to accompany Gentiles. But Peter did not yet know they were Gentiles sent by a Gentile until this. Um. <clears throat> Cornelius the centurion, as they're describing it, he's, he's putting it together. He's starting to understand, oh, okay, there's something about this, right? Okay. Um, okay, so let's, let's get into first century halakha. In uh, Daniel Lancaster's book, uh, Chronicles of the Apostles, he, he gives this overview of halakha. 
that I want to share with you now. So first century halakha, the legal rulings, attempted to prevent Jews from socializing with Gentiles. Certain purity legislation prohibited Jews from entering the homes of Gentiles and from eating food potentially contaminated by Gentiles. John 18, Acts 10 here, and Galatians 2 all infer that devoutly observant Jews, which Peter was, avoided entering Gentile homes and eating with Gentiles primarily for reasons of ritual purity. Again, laws around how, how do we remain ritually pure, we're, we're nowhere commanded to, but how do you do it? Well, halakha is how you do it. Uh, leaders get together, they say, okay, here's the question, how do we do this? And they come to a determination, here is the halakha, here's how we're going to walk this out, here's how we're going to get to uh, fulfilling the command. Second Temple Judaism regarded the homes of Gentiles as both unclean and ritually contaminating because of the possibility of corpses buried inside. Now, remember back earlier, he's staying with a tanner. Or actually, in this scene, he's staying with a tanner. Someone who is always around corpses has probably got pieces of corpses on him all the time and in his home, right? So there's, there's ways in which Peter can maneuver around this. Uh, but this is a, has so much to do about ritual purity. Uh, in some pagan burial customs, families deposited the remains of relatives and loved ones within their homes. A quick duck into a Gentile's house legally, uh, halakhically rendered a Jew just as ceremonially unclean as if he had stepped inside a tomb or touched a human corpse. Okay, again, here's uh, Tabitha, Dorcas, the gazelle, a dead woman. He goes in, he touches her after she comes back to life. So there's, there is in him this understanding that halakha can be put off to the side here when dealing with Jewish people. Um, this concern, however, would apply only to someone who was attempting to maintain a state of ritual purity, which, of course, he was. Uh, Lancaster quotes Liechtenstein, here he says, Lichtenstein explains the prohibition as follows. This prohibition was conducted according to Pharisaic stringency and their rulings. They ruled that foreign lands and Gentiles were tame, which was unclean in the time of the Second Temple, as we know from the Mishnah and Talmud. In the early first century, under the leadership of Hillel and Shammai, the Sanhedrin introduced a controversial piece of legislation called the 18 Measures. Primarily because Gentiles were idolaters, the 18 Measures declared Gentiles ritually unclean and their food ritually contaminated by idols. So, so he would have been hesitant to, A, let them in his home, uh, and certainly to go with them. But this was, all, this was all for Peter's benefit. Okay, moving on. We're, in, we're still in verse 23. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. There were six of them. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, so he entered the home. Cornelius met him and fell down on his feet, at his feet, and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. This was his, his household, his family, his slaves, some of his soldiers, and probably some friends too, a big gathering, which is a very Roman thing to do. Um, and he said to them, 
you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent, me, sent for me. Okay, you yourselves know. Peter explains the halakha. He explains why it is Cornelius may have never had a Jewish guest in his home before or why a Jewish, a Jewish man or woman would have never entered into Cornelius' home. So he explains the halakha. And he also explains here what the vision meant that he had. This is an example. Uh, someone recently reminded me of this. There are times when the Bible explains itself, and this is one of those. Um, this vision that is not only not only was it confusing for Peter, a a you know a, a, an apostle, someone who knew Scripture, who had it, who had Torah memorized, who was a witness to all these things, he was perplexed. Certainly, it's going to perplex us. But the answer is here. In verse 28, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. That's it. That is what the vision of the sheet was about. Not about food, not about kosher, nothing. It was about people. That's what it was about. Uh, but he still doesn't know why he's there. He went, he's, he's obeying the, the vision, the, uh, the Lord, but he doesn't know. So he asks, so why am I here? Verse 30, and Cornelius said, four days, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. Again, he is, this is one of the times of prayer. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you've been kind enough to come now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. In verse 31 here, we see something very telling, and this is something that must have struck Peter. Your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Uh, Gentiles could come and offer uh, sacrifices, uh, offer animals to be sacrificed, but they couldn't. They couldn't actually do it. Here we see God accepting his sacrifice. Your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. A memorial have been memorialized for God. That is big. That's huge. And that's also sinking in to Peter as he still is putting all the pieces in place to understand what is going on. That is crucial to Peter. In verse 33, when Cornelius said, and you have been kind enough to come, that also indicates that he knows that it is unlawful, it is halakhically incorrect for a Jew to enter the house of a Gentile. He knows that. He respects that. He honors that. So now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have commanded by the Lord. This is... This is where Peter is fully understanding what's going on. Moving on to verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right 
is acceptable to him. Peter now fully understands. He is there as an ambassador, as a witness to Yeshua, to the Gentiles. And that he is to tell them what he, what he has to tell them, what he knows. Uh, so then he goes into, and I won't read through all this, so then he goes into um, his, uh, his witness. Like here's, the, here's the story. Here's the story of Yeshua. Now, he, he can assume that Cornelius and his household and those gathered know a few things. They know most of the story. Right? They, they have been to the synagogue to hear. Uh, they, uh, they're just missing a few pieces. Um, and let me move on here. Uh, he, he basically says to them, uh, let's see, uh, well, let me just go ahead and read it. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Yeshua the Messiah, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed. So they've, they've also been hearing about who Yeshua is, and, and word gets around, um, and who John the Baptist is, and all these people. How God anointed Yeshua of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the, the, the Satan, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. So he's now talking about us, the apostles. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. So he's recounting some of these claims and giving veracity to the story of Yeshua that they've probably heard. He's saying, yes, this has happened. Uh, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judged of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So he's, he's hitting on some, some basic points here at the end because he knows he's, he's to come and basically say, okay, everything you've heard is true. Yep, and we're the ones who are going around uh, saying that, yes, this is true. We're, we're, we're witnesses. While Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised um, who had come with Peter, the circumcised being just a, a nickname for the people who were Jewish, uh, because of the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptism, for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Yeshua the Messiah. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Now, it was customary um, that Gentiles who were coming to faith would have to convert to Judaism first, be circumcised first, and then be baptized into the community of Messiah, of Yeshua. But here, Peter's like, uh, this is out of order. They have this, they've received the Spirit. So uh, let's just forego the circumcision bit, and they can be baptized. Absolutely. Bring them in. They are now, they are now part of the community. Then they asked him to stay for a few days. Um, Okay, so now we're in 11, and word has spread to Jerusalem that Peter is doing something halakhically incorrect. Um, that he's, uh, he's, he's, maybe they think he's gone and made a decision that he ought not to have without first consulting them. So they're not happy. Um, 
verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Okay, so there, there it is. There's the halakha. Don't eat with Gentiles. Now, the, uh, one of the big problems with this halakha that, that I read earlier about not going into a Gentile's home, not eating anything uh, given to you by a Gentile, there's a flaw in this in that this halakha assumed idolatry of every Gentile. And that would make sense. If, if you, as a Gentile, you were idolatrous just by nature, then yes, I'm not going to eat your food. I'm not going to associate with you. Right? That would make sense. But there, that was the flaw in this halakha. It had to assume the universal idolatry of Gentiles, which Peter is now seeing. It just ain't true. Um, <clears throat> so here we see in, in verse 11, going through on down to the end, uh, that Luke includes the entire story again. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't write, uh, so Peter went to Jerusalem, circumcised in part, he criticized him saying, uh, you, you went and circumcised men and ate with them, but Peter, be, be, Peter began and told them all that had happened. He didn't do that. He didn't write that. He went through it all again. The vision, his vision, um, uh, Cornelius's vision, and then everything that had happened, that they received the Spirit, all of this, he included this again because he knew, I think, that this was going to be a potentially hard lesson for the Jewish believers to learn. Possibly. I say possibly because of something you will see at the very end, the very last verse. So this is all, this is all about halakha, the traditions, the, the legal rulings regarding who the Jewish believers are to, permitted to interact with. This halakha had to be dismantled in order for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. It had to be addressed, and it had to be addressed at this time, um, which is why Luke puts this story next to Saul, who is the one, who is the instrument, who's going to be doing this. This has to be made clear to the, the leaders of the Jewish community. Um, one of the questions I have in the discussion guide, you'll see, is, well, why didn't they just go for, call, call for Philip? Philip was a Greek speaker. He was a Hellenized Jew. He was in Caesarea already. Why did the Lord send for Peter, who was a day's journey away, to come and do this? Who didn't speak Greek or spoke broken Greek? Why did why they do that? Um, and so that's a that's something that I'd like you to discuss. But um, so again, I said this was possibly a hard lesson for the Jewish believers to learn. We'll see in verse eighteen here. When they heard these things, they fell silent. Not when they heard these things, they burst open in debate. Or they, you know, rended their garments. They, you know, there was no, like, passionate response. There was no, you know, pounding of anything. When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. One of the, another translation I was reading earlier said that they, that they responded, well then, um, which I thought was, I could picture them sitting around, um, hearing everything, they're silent, and they're just looking at each other like, 
Well, I guess that's that. Uh, the Gentiles now <laughs> receive the gift of repentance that leads to life. So that's just funny. Um, so when I said they, this possibly would be a hard lesson to learn, this is, this is something else that's, that's important. Their relatively quick conversion of thinking is, is noteworthy. It has been said that devout Jews, and devout meaning Torah-observant, prayerful, people who, Jewish people who do want to do God's will, will not hesitate to believe in Yeshua as Messiah when they receive the vision. Simple. That, I think, is the lesson for us today. God, Peter's takeaway, he has a vision, and he changes his mind about something that is very important to the community, to the Jewish community, and even to the Messianic Jewish community. He's shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Never be so attached to your halakha, to our halakha. Again, I'm pointing to empty pews. To our halakha. Never be so attached to our halakha, to our traditions, to our legal rulings about how it is we fulfill the commands, how it is we do the will of God. That we cannot change our understanding about God's will, and then be the ones to carry it out. Okay? Do not teach as commands the traditions of men. Do not follow customs at the expense of people. Peter, earlier on, he had every, every right, every reason, halakhically, to not go in to Tabitha's home, to not touch her after she was raised from the dead, to not go into to the tanner's home and stay with him and bless him, most likely. But he did, because he understood for the Jewish people, I can set aside halakha. He just needed to see that he could also do that for all people. And we need to do that too. Um, in a few weeks, I'm going to be talking about halakha, BT halakha, how it is we are to understand halakha, the way we do things. And we have to come at it with this perspective. Customs are good. Traditions are good. But if they get between us and blessing people, if they are a hindrance to doing God's will, then it is a halakha that needs to be dismantled or a halakha that we just don't need to do at, at all costs, right? We need to be about doing God's will not about the peculiar ways in which we have decided to do it. You know, Yeshua, he, he was not about the cross. That's not what he was about. Yeshua was about doing God's will. And it included the cross for him. Let's be people who do God's will who listen to God, who accept that our traditions, our customs, the way we do things might need to be set aside for a moment or for a people or for a, some reason, but that we can still obey the command 
without having to do it the way in which our brains have devised to do it. Does that make sense? I hope so. I love Acts. This has been so great. Um, and uh, yeah, again, this was not about food. Peter's vision, nothing to do with food. This is about people. This was about God using people, uh, using his called people as instruments to other people that he cleans from the inside. Uh, that to not look at others and say, oh, they, are prob- they probably don't know Yeshua, or they're probably not good Christians or, or good Messianic Jews or, or good whatever. Like, don't, don't just, just look with spiritual eyes. Look with spiritual eyes at the source of people. Cornelius, uh, the, the source of Cornelius was God. Um, and, and Peter needed to be reminded of that. We need to be reminded of that too um, from time to time. So anyway, I hope this was helpful. Uh, I hope this garners some good discussions. Um, and yeah, I thank you all for coming here to this empty auditorium. Uh, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. And you know, I, I, I thank you for this often. I thank you for the apostles. I thank you for the writers of the Greek scriptures and the ones who faithfully protected and transmitted it over the millennia uh, to reach our eyes and ears here in modern time. Thank you for that. Thank you for, for protecting it and for blessing those people who did your will in carrying it through time. I pray that we will do the same, that we will uh, absorb it, we will drink it in, and we will have it be part of us so that we are, in a way, a protective vessel of your word and your will in our lifetime, and that we hand that down uh, from generation to generation. But I thank you for this. I thank you for the insights. I thank you for Peter. I thank you for his humility. Uh, I thank you for his courage, too, to stand in the face of the disapproval of the community in which he was a part, uh, but his, his confidence in knowing that he was obeying your word and your will and hearing your voice. Help us to all hear your voice in the same way. Make us into the people you want us to be, Lord, um, and we long for your Yeshua. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.